Well, we come to the main business of the meeting, and uh, for this lecture, the committee did something very unusual. Normally, we look at the range of the wide range of topics available to us of a historical nature, and we try to choose something, and then we look at who might lecture on it, or sometimes we choose the two together. But in this case, um, we felt that we should invite Peter Hearn, who is, has a very long history of major contributions to the society um, in all sorts of ways, including, of course, the presidency, um, and has also had a very interesting and distinguished career in industry, we should invite Peter to lecture to the historical group upon a subject of his choosing. And that's what tonight's lecture is. And he's chosen the subject, the right size matters. He has developed over the years views on a variety of things. Some of you have heard some of them from the floor in discussion here, and I'm sure he'll be elaborating on some of that, um, and we shall have a very interesting lecture. Um, Peter attended Loughborough, Cranfield and MIT for his academic training. He has had periods in the aeronautical industry, in the airlines at BOAC and the helicopter group in BFA, and then he joined Elliott Brothers, which was later absorbed into the Marconi Company, from which he retired as chairman of the avionics group in 1994. Um, he's also done a great deal of flying himself. If you look in his entry in Who's Who, you will find under recreations a typically Peter way of putting things. He says, flying with or without engines. So you can understand from that that he's not just a powered pilot, he's a, a very accomplished glider pilot. Peter, please give us your lecture. Well, thanks very much, Chairman. And uh, I'm really, thank you very much indeed, all my friends and colleagues coming here tonight. I can see somebody here from phase of my career, pretty well every phase of my career touched on in this lecture, so it will at least keep me honest as to what I say. I'd like to start the uh, lecture in a rather un-English way, if you don't mind, and dedicate it to Alan Purnell, who is one of the most experienced glider pilots in the United Kingdom, and a, life, a friend of some 35 years, who unfortunately was killed on Monday in an air-to-air -air collision at Lasham. And I'd just like to say this, particularly to the Lasham members here tonight, uh, as to uh, dedicate the lecture to him. Now, I chose this title, The Light Size Matters, because it seemed to me, over the 50 years which I was directly involved in the British aircraft industry, that we have frequently shot ourselves in the foot by making aircraft, engines, or organizations either too large or too small. The right size really does matter, and this was brought home to me when, in 1946, I started my first full-time job in the industry in the aerodynamics office at Saunders Row, working on the Saunders Row Princess. And for those of you who may remember, this had a span of some 220 feet, a wing area of 5,000 square feet, and an all-up weight in the region of 350,000 pounds. 
When I got there, I was shown around the mock-up, and I was surprised, at the very least, to find that in the layout which I was shown, the, this behemoth would only carry about 105 passengers. The most impressive thing was the fact there were 13 toilets, which is something in the order of one per eight passengers. I wish we had the same ratio today in the 747 or the Airbus. <laughs> and the whole idea of spending so much money and effort to achieve what appeared to be such a little reward struck me as somewhat bizarre. It certainly wasn't the right size. In fact, the problems in size and in flying boats in general were brought home to me very starkly some three months later when I participated as an observer in my first flight trial, which was of an automatic docking system for the Princess. The trial was carried out in a hack Sunderland, flown, or rather taxied by Geoffrey Tyson, the chief test pilot, consisted in trying to hook onto a long underwater cable running through a pulley at each end using retractable hooks in the nose and the aft section of the Sunderland. The idea was to hook the aircraft on. It would then be towed by the cable into the dock. Unfortunately for the innovator of this great idea, there was a 20-knot crosswind across the heading of the cable. And after three hours on the water, we'd managed to hook the nose hook on once and the tail hook on twice, separately, that is, and, it was, which, and that was an absolutely frightening condition because the thing was totally unstable. But we never got the nose and the tail on together. Tyson, who didn't suffer fools gladly, wrote a damning report, and I believe the system ultimately sank without trace. But if that, and if that was what a crosswind do to a relatively small Sunderland, how on the earth would the much bigger Princess cope? And of course the answer was that it wouldn't. Flying boat enthusiasts will tell you that they combine the pleasures of aviation with those of sailing. My experience was exactly the opposite. They combine the totality of the hazards of air and water. The high wind problems of large vehicles with low inertia and large surface areas, whether they're flying boats, airships, or even high-sided delivery vehicles, are the same throughout intractable. Flying boat was really an air yacht whose wartime usefulness in using relatively unprepared bases had now evaporated. Since 1934, KLM had been operating DC-2s and DC-3s through to Amsterdam, Batavia. Imperial Airways had had a rather strange service consisting of railway trains, flying boats, HP-42s, and finally DH-86s to link up with Australia, and had finally finished up with the Empire boats, which night stopped at their rest houses all the way to India, South Africa, or Australia. I leave you to decide the economics of an airline operating its own worldwide chain of water airfields for its own exclusive use, and whether it could and where it could only operate on one of its principal intended routes, the North Atlantic, in the summer summer months. When I got to BOAC in 1949, it was apparent that the U.S., for the time being at least, had a reasonably winning formula. A lot's been written about BOAC's so-called prejudice in favour of U.S.-built aircraft. But looking at it from the inside, and a colleague of mine here at night, Captain Ian Jeffrey, I think will confirm this, I believe it was in the late 1940s the only view that could be taken. World geography tends to be rather fixed and vary only slowly, and in 1943-46, to 46, the range requirements for commercial aircraft were one-stop or two-stop North Atlantic routings, and for sensible routings to the Far East and Pacific, demanded an aircraft with a still air range at full reserves and volumetric payload, that's full passenger seats and cargo, of something in excess of 2,800 nautical miles. Only the Americans had such aircraft. The Tudor, the Hermes, and even the proposed medium-range empire, which later evolved through the long-range empire and then the Britannia, did not approach it. 
The UK industry simply was not in a position to meet its needs for long-range civil aircraft. And in my opinion, the key to much of the problem lay in the inability of the British aircraft industry, British aero engine industry, to field a civil engine of the right size. The mathematics were relatively simple. A max takeoff weight of around 100,000 pounds, and preferably slightly more, is needed for a 2,800 nautical miles still air sector range. And airworthiness and performance requirements dictate a power loading of no more than 10 or 11 pounds per horsepower. Ergo, one needs four engines of 2,500 pounds each, 2,500 horsepower each. The UK had the Hercules 763 of a rather doubtful 2,000 horsepower to power the Hermes 4. The, uh, there was a 1,650 horsepower odd Civil Merlin on the Argonaut, which was not nearly as bad as it sometimes painted, and a virtually non-existent Civil Centaurus. Avros, I believe, were attempting a six Merlin aircraft, which would have given them the right amount of power, which would have become the Brabazon III, and it was cancelled after the Tudor debacle. The U.S. had the then uh, non-turbo Wright 3350, which in its 18BD1 form gave a reliable 2,500 horsepower. And in the Constellation 749, and I've got to say this is an 049, which had the earlier 2250 horsepower engine, which was not as good, it had lubrication problems. But when they were sorted out, in the 2500 horsepower engine, the 749, you could cruise happily at about 240 knots or so at 20,000 feet for 10 hours, or even more on occasions. And the DC-6B was turning in a similar performance. In contrast, the Hermes had been so boosted to get its... Uh, Hercules up to 2,100 takeoff, horsepower takeoff power, that the engine went out of tune after one takeoff, and the ARB insisted that the rated power be reduced by some 40 or 50 horsepower compared with that which uh, had been achieved on type test. More seriously, on the Hermes, the maximum you could actually pull in cruising flight was 950 horsepower, which was only some 46 horse percent of takeoff power. And the net result was that the aircraft was more than 30 knots or so slower than Constellation, and even slower when engine reliability and engine life uh, caused BOAC, wrongly in my opinion, to strip out the uh, pressurization system and prohibit operation in FS gear. We'd got ourselves into this bind, partly because the Bristol board had very wrong-headedly fired Fedden in 1942, and the development impetus of Bristol engines had sagged. Hence, the military use of the Centaurus were driving its development, and of course, at the end of World War II, military interest was beginning to wane. But partly also this occurred because Fedden, whom myself and one or two others in the audience got to know later, somewhat in his later life, as part of our Cranfield Society activities, was either an irresistible force or an immovable object, depending on which side of the argument you were on. And he had decreed that the Sleeve valve engine was the only solution to the high-powered radial. Most unfortunately, Wright, Pratt and Whitney, and BMW proved him wrong. And even on his own side, Rod Banks, in his book, I Kept No Diary, wrote in Chapter 18 how the superior cylinder finning, lubrication, and sodium-cooled poppet valves enabled U.S. manufacturers to build bigger and cheaper engines. And indeed, the Wright 3350 which was in the Constellation, I just shown you, in its exhaust gas turbine-assisted form, where it had three EGTs geared onto the crankshaft, it was a fitting finale to the high-powered civil piston engine. It was reliable, uh, but unfortunately rather noisy, 
and rather terrifying for passengers looking out the window at night. But just to show that the US also got things wrong in the size story, this slide shows a four-row, nine-cylinder per row, 36-cylinder Lycoming XR7755 piston engine designed to produce 5,000 horsepower on entry into service. In fact, it was meant to go into the B-36. And when I saw this monster at the National Air and Space Museum Reserve Collection and the complexity and problems which it would obviously bring in its train, I knew why we had to invent the, the gas turbine, the prop gas turbine. It certainly was a case where the right size, this was not the right size, it was too big for the technology which it was trying to use. But there was, however, another aspect on the right size aspect, and that's the nature of the geography of the US compared to the geography of the UK and Europe. If we look at slides, the next two slides, and you compare the distances, which uh, typical distances on US civil sectors, and those on what I might say UK European sectors, you see that there is a very marked uh, bias in terms of distance in favor of, of the US. And uh, whereas London to Edinburgh is 288 miles, New York to Los Angeles is 2,144, and even the more mundane New York-Chicago is 641, compared with sort of the maximum distance we might have of somewhere between Berlin and Rome. And if you look at the overseas routes, uh, the long-distance flights uh, in the Pacific area of course, uh, are distances which are greatly in excess of the North Atlantic routing. And uh, just to make sure that we're not being too biased, uh, Moscow and uh, the, the Russian distances show very clearly why Aeroflot became one of the larger, if not the largest airline, and possibly least efficient airline in the world in one period in its existence. There's no doubt in my mind that the geographic challenges of the US internal and external transport distances compared to the much shorter European sectors and this type of stopping train empire services which we used to operate forced the pace of air transport development in the US in terms of aircraft, air traffic control and navigation infrastructure, airline company structure, and all of the other necessities of safe aircraft operation. I'm on record as saying that such is the need of the US domestic economy for safe and effective commercial air transport that the US economy would effectively come to a halt or at least slow down very dramatically if by some divine malfeasance all air transport was cancelled overnight. On the other hand, Europe, with its much shorter lines of communication and relatively good service transport links, is not nearly so critically dependent on air transport as a not unsatisfactory surface alternative is readily available, except in the United Kingdom, of course. <laughs> In my kingdom, in my opinion, the scale of the U U.S. geography has had a very major effect on America's continuing supremacy in aviation since World War II. Our country and our European colleagues simply have not had the national imperatives or natural will, na national will to solve what up to recently was a less critical element in national perspective. The right size of landmass of the country has been much more influential in post-World War II aviation than many people believe. And for example, it was in fact uh, responsible for driving the development of the best four-engine bomber of the war. And I'll be interested to see who gets the right answer to that question. And just as a matter of, uh, of existing practice, uh, American fighters, one of the reasons American fighters have significantly better ranges than British fighters, and therefore are more saleable overseas, is the fact that they've got to be able to get across the states with a one stop in between. So in other words, you've got to be able to fly, do a 1,200 mile leg on a US fighter 
you get from say somewhere to Denver or sort of beyond it or Denver and then onto the the west coast, and that's one of the areas in which the the landmass of the USA subconsciously, if you like, drives the superior range performance of its military aircraft. However, things were changing, and in my my very bright and sometimes overzealous boss, Christopher Dykes, who had become technical development director of BOAC, was driving hard to bring new thinking to the fore. The Comet 1 was an obvious spur to this, although in its ghost engine version, 1,350 nautical miles, or sometimes 1,500 nautical miles sectors, were the biggest we could operate on it in the eastern routes to India, Africa, Ceylon, and up to Tokyo. I was fortunate enough to be the secretary of an assessment committee, which conducted chirp-like interviews with all of the early Comet fleet captains to try to distill the first-hand experience of what was wrong and what was right with the new bird. And I haven't got much time to talk about all of the points, but there were two things, one of which we've talked in the past was the question of uh, takeoffs, which ultimately led to the unfortunate ground stall uh, problem. And I've got to say that up till then, rotation speed, and I think Ian uh, will agree with me, was uh, a totally unknown factor. When it felt right, you took it off the ground. You didn't actually look, now we're VR, off we go. Uh, it was a, a purely instinctive guess. And I can tell you that on the Comet fleet, uh, for a long time, there's a great deal of argument about the best way to achieve short landings, which is to land the airplane and hold the nose in the air until the, the speed bled off. Now, uh, talking of landings and brakes, it's interesting that the Comet was, I think, the first British aircraft to be developed with brakes which met the uh, engine failure uh, and the accelerate stop case uh, for takeoff. And these trials were conducted at London Airport, and to everybody's horror when the Comet had actually done this down uh, runway 09, I think it was on 09 North at the time, uh, the um, aircraft, uh, the brakes were absolutely white hot, and we felt the whole aeroplane was going to catch fire. And, of course, was allowed to cool down slowly. It took quite a long time to do. And the Havilands went away and did some sums and put a lot bigger brakes on the aeroplane. Uh, my boss said to me, no, we better have a look at the brakes on some of our other aircraft. I mean, are they as bad as that? So I happened to do some sums on this. And I discovered that up till then, braking power on, engine, on aircraft had been designed to hold the aircraft against the run-up thrust of the engines on, uh, when you're running up on the ground. And that nobody had done any sensible uh, uh, calculations or design assessments on the kinetic energy absorbent. It was just felt that if, if you could hold it against the run-up thrust, then the brakes would be just about right. So that caused quite a change in design requirements and brakes in this country and, of course, overseas. But, of course, what we really needed to know was could we operate a turbojet airplane economically? And here we began to see the light on the horizon, which has led to today's very effective air transport aircraft. Until and even after the arrival of the comet, uh, BOAC's airline commercial department concentrated uniquely on the parameter of cost per seat mile in assessing an aircraft's economic performance. When all aircraft traveled at around the same speed, this was not entirely unjustified. But when the jet aircraft arrived, two things happened. First of all, the operating cost per seat mile increased, part because of the increased fuel burn and part because the aircraft's price had also gone up. But much more importantly, the amount of passenger seat miles the jet aircraft could generate went up enormously, much more so than the direct operating cost. So the hourly surplus of revenue minus direct operating cost was much higher for the jet aircraft as opposed to the equivalent piston or turboprop. 
and this is a, a series of three slides, and they're comparing two 100-seat aircraft, uh, one a turboprop, which is sort of Super Britannia, about 200,000 pounds takeoff weight, and the other in the Vickers uh, VC-7, Vickers 1000 level. It's a Nikeo 2003 cost base, and in direct operating costs, you can see that the something about a 9% increase over turboprop costs the jet. But if we look at the, uh, we now add in the flight, opera, um, flight operating costs together with the other direct, indirect costs, uh, the difference comes down to around about 9% uh, or so, or something like that. And if we now subtract the amount of, from the amount of revenue the airplane produces per hour, which is $4,268 for the turboprop and $6,341 for the jet, and we take the direct operating costs, uh, the total costs from it, you find that the jet airplane is producing something the order of 30% more contribution to overheads and profit per hour than the turboprop. And uh, that's favorable to turboprop, I've got to tell you. It's uh, more like a 36% like difference rather than a 30% difference. And that was the thing which... Uh, we, uh, in the BOAC Product Assessment Group, we became our sort of religion from about uh, 1952 onwards. The Comet 1 shortfalls in performance were known and accepted by BOAC as suitable for the then Empire routes. But for the Atlantic and the South Atlantic, we were looking at the Comet 2 with the RA-7 Havens, which was another rather frightening experience in the early stages, or the RA-3 was, anyhow, which we hoped would give us one-stop operation not non-stop, but one-stop operation across the Atlantic, as well as regular Dakar Recife on the South Atlantic. But the right size did continue to matter, and even at the increased all-up weight of the Comet 2 at 120,000 pounds, uh, and the appreciably better specific consumption and air miles per pound of the Avon aircraft, regular one-stop operations still looked marginal, and we were faced with the unattractive proposition of a two-stop Shannon Gander New York operation in competition with non-stop super constellations or DC-7Cs. And whilst the Havilands were well aware of our problems, they continued to try to solve them with the growth versions of the basic comet design. Uh, and unfortunately, up to the time I left BOAC in early 54, the old comet wing, which was good at its time of conception in 1947, was beginning to limit growth possibilities. And as I mentioned at previous meetings with uh, David Newman, the absence of modern slotted nose flap systems limited the takeoff weight and the climb gradient to the extent that we simply could not get, make the airplane heavy enough or carry enough to operate these sectors. But sitting on the stocks were the proposed civil versions of the V-bombers. And uh, I hope the handy page people will forgive me if I say that the, the Vickers 1000 VC-7 looked by far the best choice in terms of lower risk and availability, even, as even if its projected cruise speed of about 510 miles per hour was somewhat lower than we would have liked. In passing, I think I should add that the V-bombers themselves were one of the best UK examples of getting the right size, uh, the right size of project and the right size of aircraft, greatly helped by the excellent analytical studies carried out by RAE, which flashed out the, fleshed out the RAF operational requirement. The Vickers 1000, the jet lobby and BOAC, headed by Dykes and a number of enthusiastic supporters, threw a lot of effort behind the Vickers 1000. I carried out many of the what-if performance studies in BOAC, 
from which ultimately emerged a requirement and specification for an aircraft with a maximum takeoff weight of some 255,000 pounds, powered by Conways, which should take 100 passengers, London, New York, direct against the 90% headwind. Its performance and weight terms, it wasn't dissimilar to an earlier, to the early Boeing 707-100 series, except that the Conways, especially in developed form, would have given it significantly better specific consumption and air mass per pound than the very first Boeings, and would hopefully have given us the London, the non-stop London-New York range. In researching the National Archives this lecture, I was gratified to see an RAE note at the time, a later report by W.B. Lewis and Kettle, endorsed uh, BOAC's uh, conclusions that the big jet and not the turboprop was the best solution for long-range transport and was also the most economical. But here was when BOAC uh, politics started coming into play. I was even hoping I might aspire to be the assistant BOAC project engineer on the aircraft when disaster struck. Dykes was replaced, Dykes was uh, uh, forced to resign because of internal BOAC politics and he was replaced by Charlie Abel, later a president of the Royal Aeronautical Society, who joined Imperial Airways in 1934 and worked his way up on merit as licensed ground engineer and inspector, become the manager of number three line operating out of Filton, constellations of Stratocruisers out of Filton, and the very effective line manager he was. Uh, but his background had not been in the aircraft assessment and project assessment business. And uh, when he came up to London with Norman Newbury, he brought Norman Newbury, his chief maintenance engineer, who sadly died shortly after he arrived. And they had both been subject to literally daily sales talk by Bristol, who were building the Britannia in an inter interconnecting hangar to the hangar in which British Overseas Airways maintained their aircraft. So it was hardly surprising that there was a pro, uh, automatically a pro-Bristol bias for quite normal reasons came into being. At the same time, the economics branch in BOAC, an oxymoron if there ever was one, were religiously defending their article of faith that what really mattered was the cost of operating the aircraft and not the amount of money it would earn. That way, British pessimism dictated that if it flew empty or attracted few passengers, the airline would lose the least money. And finally, and I'm quite serious about this, I'm not kidding, lots of papers claimed that to that effect. And finally, there was the feeling in one important decision maker that Christopher Dykes had supported the jet, Christopher Dykes had been fired, so the safe career solution was to support the turboprop. But it took a little maneuvering before BOAC was able to get the Vickers 1000 uh, consigned to cancellation. In 1952-53, we'd had a brief look at the Britannia with a proposed Olympus turboprop derivative called the BE-25 Orion. And although it was an advance on the basic Proteus-powered aircraft, it didn't, certainly didn't beat the long-range jet as exemplified by the Vickers 1000. Uh, the, uh, it, they then looked at a so-called Bristol 187, a thin wing, thin wing Britannia with a near-sonic uh, prop tip speed, which frightened the life out of RAE, and we certainly didn't look very happily about it. And as late as December 1954, Whitney Strait, uh, deputy chairman of BOAC, said that BOAC thought the Vickers 1000 should go ahead despite the fact that the engineering department was planning for its hoped-for demise. And they ultimately achieved this by producing a totally spurious paper based on what they claim was the abysmal airfield, airfield performance of the Vickers 1000. And the figures quoted in the uh, National Archives, which I went through before this lecture, 
said that this takeoff distance was 2 to 50 yards to 50 feet at ISA plus 30, an approach speed of 136 knots, which is pretty decent by anybody's standards even today. Uh, compared to the paper predictions of the BOA 707 and the DC-8 at the time, uh, the Vickers uh, 1000 takeoff distance was less favorable. But Stuart Scott Hall, who many of the elders of us will remember, was on the committee, protested it was very unfair to believe what he thought were exaggerated U.S. marketing figures with the Vickers uh, takeoff performance figures, which REE had agreed and backed. And he was so right. Uh, the early Boeing 707 was one of the most ardent ground huggers of all time, needing some 9,500 feet or so for a sea level ISA takeoff at max weight. BOAC then played their final card and produced a paper which stated that if they wanted to carry full volumetric payload, well over 24,000 pounds, and the biggest 1,000 from Australia to the United Kingdom, they'd be forced to use many short stage lengths and hence much longer elapsed time because the poor Vickers 1, poor in inverted commas, Vickers 1000 takeoff performance required restrict-off takeoff weights with low fuel loads and, and volumetric payload. Now this was actually standing airline planning practice on this head. In all other instances, one calculates the fuel load you need for the appropriate sector length, and then determines the payload you could be carried. And if you did this more appropriate type of analysis, it showed that some 70 to 80% of volumetric payload could be taken the whole way without problems over sensible 3,000 nautical mile stage, stage lengths. The Vickers 1000 was not perfect. Its high lift devices, though better than the Comet series, were not as good as those developed at the 707, but they could have been improved during flight development. And the US adoption of the German concept of pod-mounted engines with all the benefits of wing weight, air elasticity, and engine type change was, of course, has become the universal way to go. But nevertheless, for its time, the Vickers 1000, like the contemporary 707 and DC-8, were the right size, and it mattered very much indeed when it was axed. There's little doubt in my mind that despite some of the mostly unfounded criticisms of its takeoff performance, the UK could have picked up some 20% of the early long-range jet market with the Vickers 1000, which would have given us a much better foundation in the future. And just in passing, when I was later in BEA, the same dead hand of contemporary airline economic thinking managed to castrate the well-balanced DH-121 and instead produce a 99-seater Trident 1, which um, uh, was an even worse ground hugger than the 707-100 series. Somehow or other, Boeing didn't believe this economic argument of, small, of smallness and size. And the 120, 130-seat 727, compared with the 100-seat Trident, 90 to 100-seat Trident, with state-of-art high-lift devices to get the Boeing in and out of the 5,500-foot runways, which then predominated in the States, became what the original 121 should have been. The end of the Vickers 1000 came at a meeting of the TARC on the 23rd, the 9th, 1955, when essentially they said, BOAC has decided that the future of the long-range air transport lies in the development of the turboprop aircraft. Along with the Lockspiter M52 decision and the Sands White Paper, this meeting is one of the three worst self-inflicted wounds which have success successively attempted to destroy the creative heart of the British aircraft industry since World War II. And needless to say, on October the 24th, 1956, just about one year after that ill-fated meeting, BOAC was allowed to order 15 Boeing 707s fitted with Conways. The penny had finally dropped that the big jet was the way forward, but it was too late to save the independent British civil aircraft industry. 
just around that time, in 1952, when we were trying to work out how to get the Comet II across the Atlantic, I spent some time in the Ops Planning Department investigating the effect of cruising speeds on the ability to schedule acceptable departure and arrival times. And somewhat with my tongue in my cheek, I read a short paper which said that what we really needed was an aircraft, sorry, excuse me, was an aircraft with a 1,400 mile per hour cruising speed. Such an aircraft could enable us to leave London uh, early in the morning at 8.30, get New York, depart New York again at 9 o'clock in the morning, arrive in London 5.30 at night, depart London at 7.30, and get New York again at 8 or 6 o'clock, which point you'd carry out inspection and maintenance, and then uh, depart New York again some four hours later uh, in time to get to London at 6.30. And uh, four times across the Atlantic in the day, and bearing in mind the comments that I've just made about the uh, faster airplanes being the best way to go because they make more money and more money in proportion to their cost, it seemed just what one needed for a high revenue earning, profit earning supersonic transport. Uh, quite how one ever produced such an aircraft was something which in 1952 I couldn't even imagine. But as an aerodynamicist, particularly one trained at Cranfield, I fell back on the internal motto, an aerodynamicist is someone who assumes absolutely everything except responsibility. <laughs> discussing, discussing his prediction a few years ago with the Concorde Fleet Engineering Manager, he admired the logic but pointed out that engineering complexity and maintenance man hours of the aircraft simply didn't allow such high utilization. I must admit I'd half suspected this when I saw the prototypes under construction at Toulouse and Filton. The units seemed to me to resemble 100-seater supersonic fighters rather than the commercial transport aircraft. Ah oh, well, perhaps next time. Now, having had, after uh, my experience in BOAC, I went to BEA and tried for five years to put civil helicopters into service, but there was never going to be, and never is going to be, the right size for a large civil helicopter for scheduled civil operations. And I found myself in 1959 at Elliott Brothers in Borehamwood running some of their avionics activities. And this is the second half of the lecture, which is more about military aircraft procurement. Here on day one at Elliott's, I was handed a hot tech potato and told to set up a group to design and manufacture the airborne central computing system for the TSR-2. This being May 1959, my knowledge of even ground-borne computing systems was extremely limited, so a quick course from the Elliott Scientific Group was necessary. Since Elliott's had manufactured some of Babbage's last machines, I felt I'd come to the font of knowledge. As an aside, when I was addressing a conference in the U.S. some three years later, I made the point that unlike the typewriter company IBM and the sewing machine company Singer Kierfot, both then strong competitors in airborne digital computers, Elliott's were the original uh, and originators and true source, having built their first digital computer in 1870, whereupon a voice in the back cried, Have you changed your design yet? <laughs> So much has been written about TSR-2, I'm not going to go on about the aircraft, but despite the fact it showed every signs of being a technical and operational success, unlike the F-111, virtually unacceptable, un unintersceptable by other aircraft at certain points in its flight envelope. It suffered from deep flaw. It was the wrong size, too big and hence too expensive. And that was a self-inflicted wound by the RAF, it, RAF itself. Because it was the only project in town, the RAF threw every requirement they could into the program to the extent that what started out as a supersonic camber re replacement, the English Electric P-17A, 
whose strike performance actually today wouldn't be much different to the F-15E. It finished up with something approaching a supersonic V-bomber replacement, which could maintain the RAF's guardianship of the nuclear deterrent. To quote but one example, the requirement of a 600-to-1,000-yard rough field-length takeoff performance at full load at ISA plus 20 to enable a retaliatory strike to be mounted from a tropical dispersal strip at any time of the day had a major effect on engine size and hence consumption and all-up weight. And if you just look at this and the very simple things that uh, the English Electric P7DNA has got a maximum takeoff weight of 73,000 pounds for a normal 1,000 uh, nautical mile radius, and the TSR2, 102,000 pounds with much bigger and more expensive engines. And this, uh, the TSR2 configuration undoubtedly was very, very greedy in terms of weight, power, fuel consumption, and so forth. The impact of the two extravagant operational, TWO, two extravagant operational requirements is very clearly shown. And had the RAF not been so greedy, we would have had, I think, an aircraft which uh, would have been still in service today very effectively. TSR2 is one of the very few projects I've ever worked on which people were always asking me for increased performance and operational capability, but never asking me how much extra these new bits of performance would cost. The seeds of self-destruction were already sown when the increasing national uh, financial crisis 1965 caused them to germinate in a deadly manner. And I have little doubt that if the RAF's overambition had been contained, the P-17A-sized aircraft would have been far enough ahead and sufficiently more attractive in price <coughs> to have avoided cancellation. The right size mattered critically. <coughs> had the TSR2 or even the P-17A gone ahead, would, of course, have seriously blunted continental Europe's ambitions to get deeply into the advanced military aircraft market and greatly helped the UK industry's competitive position in the world for the subsequent 20 or 30 years. Imagine my astonishment, therefore, when at a recent RAF Historical Society all-day symposium on TSR2, one of the most senior civil servants involved in the project told me how glad he was that it had been cancelled, because otherwise we would never have been able to develop the International Tornado Project. I left him in no doubt about my feelings, but he's rather astonished to hear them. <coughs> so from the TSR2, I went into the field of collaborative projects. I also, thanks to spurring on by Ken Warren, who's here tonight, began to get involved in UK avionics in the US marketplace, something that's now led to BA Systems being one of the major players in the US avionic field. I had, in fact, already become deeply involved in the Concorde AFCS and flight control system when we'd formed a consortium with Svena, and time is pressing, so I won't go into the details of that, except, as as usual, the French, we got screwed at the end of it. And uh, on the military side, we were hard at work on the digital nav attack system for the collaborative Jaguar, which drew heavily on the TSR2 background. I apologize for the picture of the raspy ripple Jaguar, though we are rather quite fond of that because it had our digital flight control system which finishes finished up in Eurofighter and uh, it's uh, has earned us quite a lot of business also it's a derivative on the Boeing 777 again like the Concorde the Jagger was a successful program because of three primary factors the French and the UK prime contractors had matching technical competences so there was little duplication of development and design work the UK and French governments had identical timescales and the partitioning of the work sharing was done in sensibly large blocks and well-defined interfaces. 
On the NAV attack side, we suffered initially because the UK government reluctance to fund system reliability testing. However, the fact the RAF Jagger Force, 30 years after it entered service, in its, in its most recent form, is still giving excellent service in war and peace, is a tribute to the soundness of course was initially seen as a patchwork design. So finally, the tornado and the F-16. I've coupled these together because they present the opposite faces of effective international collaboration. Firstly, the tornado. This is an F-3 rather than a GR1. This was an Anglo-German-Italian program, as you know, 42.5% UK and German, and 15% Italian. The British wanted a TSR-2 replacement which would bomb Moscow. The Germans wanted a dedicated ground attack aircraft to haunt the Russian hordes. The Italians wanted a new aircraft for their formation aerobatic team. <laughs> eventually, eventually, a compromise specification was reached, which didn't satisfy anybody, really. And as far as the British were concerned, it has resulted in an aircraft which has a significantly shorter radius of action, uh, and by tens of percent, and a slower ingress speed to the target than the existing in-service Buccaneer. So just remember that. It's not as good as the aeroplane it replaced in terms of performance. New copies of the Buccaneer could have been produced with advanced Tornado GR4 type avionics at a fraction of the cost of the collaborative program, something that was highlighted in the House of Commons report at one time. It's also worth pointing out that the Tornado, as you can see, was an expensive variable geometry design, for what reason I don't really understand, other than fashion. No nation has built a tactical variable geometry aircraft since the Tornado, and the current formula of big thrust for takeoff and breaking parachutes for landing seems to suffice for most operational scenarios. Finally, there was a the problem of putting an undeveloped paper engine, the RB199, into a new aircraft at a very immature stage in the engine development cycle, something the U.S. had gone to great lengths to avoid with their core engine development program. And Mike Neal, who is DG Engine of Mod PE, ramrodded through an equivalent U.K. core engine program, the Eurofighter, and he deserves enormous credit for avoiding the same mistakes the second one time around. And I'm very glad to see that Mike has taken time out in his busy schedule of promoting steam railways to come and be with us tonight. Having hammered out the specification, a project management structure of extreme complexity and size was developed, which had at its center the jointly owned company Panavia, which reported upwards to NAMA, the government NATO aircraft management agency, and downwards to the three constituent companies of Panavia, BAE, uh, MBB, and Aeritalia. However, there were innumerable other loops around the edges, including the National Air Force Operational Requirement Branches, in uh, Germany, UK, and Italy, who insisted on double-guessing all that was being made by NAMA. This caused enormous delays of modifications and change requests going up and down the line so slowly that the whole process became unstable, and at least one major subcontract, the source management system, had to be cancelled and restarted. And similar sort of problems have gone on with the Eurofighter, where the project management organization, in my opinion, is even worse. Sitting around in the sun at the outdoor cafe in the Arabella Platz between meetings in Munich, immediately adjacent to the Panavia headquarters, I used to say to myself, I'm sure that when the Russians designed the MiG-25, they didn't do it this way. And later, when I visited the Russian industry in the early 1990s, I discovered how right I was. The Russians worked on the basis of funding a series of design bureaus produced to produce one or two prototype aircraft, the best of which for example, the MiG-21 and the Sukhoi-27, were put into serious production 
in an associated but separate, separate group of state-owned production plants, something that's not quite achievable in a capitalistic society, but certainly it's one that seems to work pretty well. By employing skunk work techniques, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment, the Russians produced large amounts, large numbers of different prototypes. And I refer you to a book called Soviet Explains by Bill Gunston and by Gordon, Midland Books, to see how prolific they were. It's extremely well worth getting hold of the book and reading it. Unlike the Jagger and Concord programs, the tornado was not a partnership of equals, and both the German, to a much lesser extent, the Italians were anxious to duplicate or copy the British R&D activities in order to build up their own capabilities. As a result, the tornado development phase cost at least twice and probably two and a half times the national UK effort. And if you relate that fact that, that we at NATO were at that time in deadly competition with the Soviet bloc, it meant that even assuming a cost-neutral rate of exchange, the Soviets could afford to develop two or three times as many prototypes as we did for the same amount of money. It makes you think, doesn't it? It so happened at the same time that we were... Uh, enmeshed with the tornado, we won the contract for the prototype F-16 Hedlund's say, and weapon aiming system, and that led to us producing some 8,000 systems and developing a very effective night attack system, as you've seen in some of the Iraqi adventures in 1992 and recently. And that's the right size, that one, and as much as we just got the ranging ring on the Hack A-4, which we were playing around with. And this was the first time when we were able to use the power of a digital computer to generate a very uh, a, a exact ballistic and dynamic model of the bullet flight path through the sky, so that in fact the act this is the actual theoretical path the bullets are going to go on if you fire them at that particular moment. The F-16 was done in a skunk works operation. At the peak of the design phase, the GD team had some 140 people. The GD avionics section comprising of two and one half very good people. At the peak of assembly of the prototypes, there were 189 people, including designers, fitters, and assemblers, and project staff. The US Air Force approach was equally simple. They said to GD, here is $37.9 million and two F-100 engines. Go and build two prototypes of what you, GD, think is the best fighter in the world. And Northrop got a similar sum with two F-4, F-404 engine package. The GD team under Lyman Josephs, the project manager, set up in their segregated hangar, choosing some 80 highly experienced designers and engineers with a proven track record to be seconded to the team and to start things off. At the other end of the chain, the US Air Force project manager, uh, special project office uh, group was equally frugal. For the prototype phase, the special project office, always called the SPO staff, numbers the F-16 was somewhat less than 20. And even in the full-scale development phase, it was between 100 and 150 maximum. And bear in mind, too, that the F-16 was probably the most successful worldwide cooperative program to date. Several thousand have been involved in co-production programs in countries across the whole world. Compare the staffing with this staffing with some 500 or 600 more individuals involved in the three nation supervisory teams on the tornado. Very definitely the wrong size. And just to put some quantitative figures on the effectiveness, it took us one half the time to develop an F-16 equipment that it took to develop a tornado equivalent. Unless it be thought that this is a peculiarly US way of doing things, you may remember the EAP, the Europe uh, Experimental Aircraft Project, which BAE and the industry put together as a flying demonstrator of Eurofighter. It's been languishing in the museum for a long time now. So far ahead of it was, the, was it of the 
proper Eurofighter program, but it did, of course, do a lot of work and flight work on measurement of airloads. Looking back at those days, it seems to me that the difference between the US method of program management and the MOD favored pattern is one of trust. The US believes its defense contractors will produce a well-rounded technical solution with only a light supervisory touch, because after all, the contractors are the ones with the technology know-how. On the other hand, the UK chiefs of defense procurement successively seem to relish telling the world how inefficient and ineffective UK defense contractors are and how MOD are going to give them a bloody nose. It was the UK chief of defense procurement who in a tightly fought bidding battle between UK and US firms for an anti-radar missile, ultimately the BAE alarm was chosen, and during this uh, particular bidding battle, the UK Chief Defence Procurement tried to insist that the UK bid should be loaded with VAT, whilst the US bid should not be. And the same individual, after BAE, Rolls-Royce and others of us had invested considerable sums of our company's money in the EAP prototype, tried to suggest that the whole thing should now be put out to international competitive bidding with free transfer of the UK firm's industrial property to international collaborators. And we're now having a repeat match going on on the aircraft carriers. It's not a way towards a sensible method of defense procurement, which will maintain UK forces and UK industry in a properly structured and viable state to meet the increasingly serious military and economic challenges of the 21st century. To try to move towards a conclusion, it's worth comparing some of the axioms of Ben Rich and Kelly Johnson, who are the principal architects of the SR-71 and the uh, F-117. And it's worth remembering about this airplane, which I think is possibly uh, along with the Concorde, one of the most outstanding bits of aeronautical engineering has created. And the F-117, which introduced a whole slew of new types of technology and uh, military concepts, were created with skunk works operations, albeit slightly bigger than many skunk works, but it was essentially done on this highly qualified specialist small engineering team concept. Uh, in um, Ben, uh, ben Rich became quite a close professional acquaintance of mine before his tragically early death. And in his Wilbur Wright lecture in 1988, he put forward some concepts of how to run Skunk Works programs. It's worth comparing three of them, anyhow, with uh, what happens in collaborative programs. The first one being the head of the Skunk Works must have practically complete control of the program in all aspects. And the collaborative rules are that everybody except the head of the program has to. <laughs> um, I'll run through them all quickly. The contractor must be delegated, must assume more normal responsibility get good vendor bids. All nations in the project will try to obtain to dictate the contractor his options of choice. Uh, this one, I think, is well worth looking at. Funding a program must be timely so projects can continue without undue interruption. Collaborative rules are there really are no provisions for translating this above statement into Eurospeak languages. <laughs> there must be mutual trust between the military project organization and contractor. Well, that would certainly reduce the raison d'etre of the government organizations and spoil their fun. Um, restrict the number of people having any connection to the project. And the bottom one isn't entirely uh, humorous. It would certainly have an adverse effect on the number of foreign postings, overseas allowances, and promotions. And, and lastly, a very factual one, the military and industry must provide strong and small project officers. And those are the two figures which I quoted, the F-16 and the tornado. So. Obviously, you can't succeed entirely by the exploitation of skunk works concepts, but you can guess past the starting gate much more easily and get an excellent view as to what the favorite aircraft should be. It certainly is a more positive and creative way to proceed than the UK mantra heard in so many MOD organizations. 
We must have a collaborative program as it's the only way to protect against cancellation. On, of the three or four competent aircraft designed and manufacturing countries in the world, the UK is the only one who actively seeks cooperation, believing the other parties will flock to join them as men of goodwill and common intent to produce a perfect aircraft. What a hope. Our competitors in France, the US, and one day soon possibly Germany are rubbing their hands and watching us slowly self-destructing what was once one of the two or three most innovative and potentially profitable aircraft industries in the world. Immunity from cancellation is an Alice through the looking glass argument, doing something entirely the wrong way for entirely the right reasons. Why not drastically revise the way we handle our own national defense procurements and get that right instead? T.S. Eliot put it in verse, the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the wrong deed for the right reason. And what is more, the mantra is wrong. It doesn't protect against cancellation. The German government has successfully killed the ASRAM uh, version, or the ASRAM, uh, uh, European ASRAM model for the international family of missiles, uh, where we could have had the universal NATO short-range air-to-air missile, and the German technology effectively screwed it up due to technical incompetence. So the Americans, understandably, went ahead with their own improved A9 series. The NATO self-propelled gun, 155mm, they screwed up due to managerial incompetence. Uh, they could never get the parts to fit properly, and when you're shipping large bits of 155mm barrels and carriages and things around Europe and they don't fit when they come together, you can understand how difficult it is to get the whole thing changed, and eventually the whole time scale and modification program got out of kilter, and they had to be cancelled. And as you know, they've successfully threatened Eurofighter, the Tiger, Holic uh, Tiger helicopter, and now the A400M, due to the fact that they can't get their financial budgets in, in sync with their particular governments. And now we're in the era of global cooperation with the US on the joint strike fighter F-35. And whilst I'm a great supporter of buying and selling military equipment between the US and the UK on a reciprocal basis, on strictly equal terms of both sides, it takes a great deal of effort to get strictly equal terms out of the US, and often we're excluded on security grounds, sometimes spuriously. Coupled with the increasingly doubtful status of the J-35 stall variant, which is beginning to my mind, and I think others also, to resemble a 21st century skybolt, and coupled with the Rumsfeld axe, which has already chopped the Comanche helicopter, one has got to be very concerned indeed about present US-UK collaborative ventures, as opposed to the reciprocal sales between the countries. I'm fearful that the panoply of collaborative management structures that could be set up in the J-35 international program with N-1 partners could become a self-fulfilling prophecy which extends the cost, complexity, and timescale of the project beyond the level of affordability, even on a global scale. The US does not find collaborative pro programs as we understand them, that's to say from first design concept to R&D to production. They don't find it appealing in terms of cost or effectiveness, they like to see the job done by one team and one manager. And it does not regard, despite all the statements of the contrary, the US does not regard the UK or any other country as a welcome or natural partner in such enterprises. It's noticeable that the F-16, in which the design was not collaborative, has been a significantly more successful project than the F-18, where Northrop and MACDAC collaborated, for which we'd fought each other to the death. The US does welcome us as a customer, and when we have a better mousetrap, they can sometimes be persuaded to buy it, such as many of our avionic programs, the Canberra and the Harrier. 
we should lend our energies to the end of international commerce rather than international collaboration. And in this connection, we should never enter any, into any defence purchasing agreements unless we have full reciprocal rights to sell equivalent types of defence equipment in the vendor's own market. And just to show that it can be done, we, Marconi was uh, successful in selling the US some 32 radio stations the size of Daventry to re-equip the whole of the US Worldwide Voice of America network by negotiating an agreement which gave us full right to sell that equipment in the U US provided the US had a fully reciprocal right to sell similar equipment in the UK. And they had already sold some to the BBC, so we were able to exercise that agreement without any problems whatsoever. The UK, for many years, has been pathetic, pathetically weak in this matter. It can be done if you're persistent and persuasive enough. Other countries want our business, and we should ensure this is on fair terms. Otherwise, it becomes a ratchet where every foreign win in the UK denies our UK companies both in the foreign and the home markets their goods, and eventually our capabilities atrophy and die, a situation we're sadly not far from today in many areas. This is a historical paper, rather than to forecast the future, but history is meant to point the way, so if we want to be successful in either the manned or unmanned aircraft business in future, I believe we should try to follow some of the following precepts. I'm, going to, I'm afraid I'm just going to have to ask you to read them, because uh, we're running short of time. But if uh, we should retain our capability to build advanced prototypes, <coughs> minimize management complexity, if we gather, get a prototype aircraft, we get a major edge in subsequent collaborative discussions. We ensure that national operational requirements and objectives are not compromised, such as the tornado was. And if we have to, put the aircraft into production unilaterally if we can't make satisfactory collaborative agreements. And that nearly happened at one time on the Eurofighter when Herr Volker Ruhr was on the rampage. Work shares should be in large modules, well-defined interfaces. We should only allocate work to partners with matching technical competences. There should be punitive financial or other penalty clauses for national failures by any partner to meet decision dates or payment scales. And if we can't achieve this type of organization, we should go it alone on a national program. I've left the subject of money, arguments about money at the end. We've got the industry to persuade our national customer we're not trying to spend more money. Instead, we're trying to spend a lesser amount of money more effectively. Despite official claims that military aircraft collaborative programs save money, it's not a view held unanimously by those at the cutting edge. The degree of duplication and overlap which I've referred to ensures that there's large amounts of nugatory expenditure. A former colleague of mine, Ron Howard, suggested the costs of collaborative program increased by the power of the number of collaborative nations. A two is four, three is nine. I think that's a bit harsh. But informed opinion appears to suggest that development costs decreased by a factor of some 2.5, or 2.3, 2.5. So a nation bearing 40% of development costs, such as we usually do, would finish up earning, spending 92% of the cost of Go It Alone program. And to this, you've got to add the gross inefficiencies of three or four different assembly lines at Wharton, Munich, uh, Rome, uh, sorry, Turin, rather, and Madrid. Put these factors together, and the cost justifications for collaborative programs and all its design compromises and inefficiencies tend to disappear. In the days when the UK was considering the advanced combat aircraft, which ultimately led to Eurofighter, a former colleague of ours, the late John Harrison, then an AD in Future Systems Group, Mod PE, wrote a paper 
And in it, he suggested that on the basis of the tornado experience, it'd be very little more expensive to embark on a wholly UK national program. Needless to say, this paper was quickly suppressed by the Whitehall Thought Police and was reissued with markedly different conclusions. But even more important is the question as to whether the UK has the national will to succeed in aerospace. I've tried to suggest that for geographical reasons, the UK has to succeed. But on repeated occasions, the UK seems to show little interest or understanding of the long-term benefits of aerospace, or indeed any type of UK advanced technology or manufacturing activity not only in terms of direct export values and military capability, but in providing the technology knowledge structure from which we can grow UK's 21st and 22nd century economy. Quite apart from the need, both in the state and private sectors, to develop authorization and budgetary systems which are matched to the requirements of long-term programs rather than short-term expediences and electoral cycles. I believe, much though I dislike it, dislike many of the national attributes of our cross-channel neighbours, UK Limited will only succeed when we can develop the type of technology-literate administrative decision-making community which has been so successful in planning, promoting and executing French advancement in these areas. I feel that unless we have the same type of intellectual enlightenment, both in society at large and in the highest levels of governance in the UK, such as the Prime Minister and Cabinet Minister level, an enlightenment of thought and action, such as that which followed the destruction of the overarching powers of the church by Henry VIII, Luther, Newton, and Descartes in the Middle Ages. Until we achieve that type of enlightenment, which regards the use, application, and decision-making in technology, the UK is set on a slippery slope downwards in a 100 or 200 year cycle of decay. History shows us that countries do have such cycles, and the UK, despite our truly glorious past, is not immune, and neither, by the way, is China. It's forecast to be the second biggest economy of the world within 20 years, which is a remarkable uh, change in his fortune for that country in the opposite sense. So we shouldn't ignore the fact that these changes in fortune can occur. So far, the UK indications of the future are not good. Take just one final example. When the well-defined systems science of systems engineering demands that interrelated and interreactive processes are best integrated and controlled in a unified system, and the UK government persists for entirely political reasons to continue with a separated railway track and railway train operation on fears that the UK, at least, we may be reverting to the age of Galileo when prejudice and politics defeated reason and rationality to the great detriment the progress of mankind. And just to add a little footnote to that, I note in today's times that the University of Swansea is considering of stopping its chemistry course and introducing media studies instead. So, to give you some idea. Just to end on a dying fall, Philip Larkin's poem, Going, Going, contains the words, and that will be England gone. The shadows, the meadows, the lanes, the guild halls, the carved choirs, there'll be books. It will linger on in galleries, but all that remains for us will be concrete and tires. Let's hope that even now the present and future members of the RAES can help us escape that fate. Thank you very much. Well, Peter, I'm sure that you recognize by the warmth of that applause that uh, everybody here, and certainly myself included, um, thought that was a splendid lecture. 
Thank you very much. We now enter a discussion period. Um, we do have a couple of wandering microphones. We, it's our practice in these evenings to record both the lecture and the discussion and to put it on the library shelves afterwards so that we do have something for people to refer back to for the future. So the, before opening the floor fully, um, Mike Neal, whose name was mentioned uh, by Peter during the lecture, I know has to go fairly soon, so I'm going to offer him the opportunity of a first comment. Thank you, Frank, and um, thank you, Peter, for an absolutely super riveting lecture. I must um, say that um, whilst I was absorbed by the first half of the lecture, it was the second half um, dealing with defence procurement that perhaps, um, understandably, given my own background, um, turned me on. And um, I was very relieved to hear what you had to say, and I agreed with every word, because when I read the flyer um, beforehand, um, getting the right size of the project design and development teams and costs is not readily achievable in the contemporary UK approach, I really thought that you had been got at beforehand by Sir Humphrey Appleby. <laughs> With um, your wife, I understand, present, I must uh, deny myself the use of the expletive that stirs on my lips. But in fact, I would say uh, that it is jolly impossible to get project design teams, development teams and costs correct in the present situation and it hasn't been for years. Now, in this um, um, unhappy situation, as I've long viewed it, of defence procurement, what one finds um, historically is that um, the civil service tends to blame industry and industry um, tends to blame the civil service. Um, as a former DG in the scientific civil service, I'm different. As a former civil servant, I blame the civil service. Um, following the major cancellations of the TSR-2 and other aircraft at about that time, um, I think for us ourselves, we drew precisely the wrong conclusions. It was not the case that we could no longer afford to undertake major projects on our own. It was the case that to undertake them successfully, we had to prepare for them for the way in which um, we had never done so before. Um, and in particular, we had to learn the lessons that were there for all with eyes to see in the United States. And I can fairly claim that I was saying, saying this loud and clearly 25 years ago. In just the same way as the most successful military commanders in history take care to ensure, so far as possible, that everything involved is properly in place before launching their campaigns, 
So with aircraft projects, it is vital to ensure that all the requisite technology and all the other components are properly in place before we start, something which in the Ministry of Defence, obsessed with European collaboration, has consistently failed to see. Just one of its many adverse consequences has been to create additional industrial capacity in Europe where there was already a surfeit at the start. In the former engine division, which it was my privilege to help, as to head, I think we were the exception. And the National Audit Office, no less, so I have its report here, over 10 years after I'd gone, acknowledged that it was only in the engine division that there was a properly formulated strategy for future engine programs. And quite interestingly, separately from that, the, um, in the Whittle lecture five years ago, Colin Green, a director of Rolls-Royce, and I have his lecture here, this was, I think, five years ago, he said, contrast the Eurofighter with its EJ200 engines, which will have taken 14 years from start of development to entry into service, with the Boeing 777 and its Trent engines, which will have achieved the same thing in just 35 months. The programmes were every bit as challenging technically, to say nothing of the fact that the Boeing and Trent programmes were completed on time and within budgeted cost envelopes. Now, I was very glad that you mentioned my old friend John Harrison, for I well remember that particular report and the grisly fate which it suffered. And I think that um, the, um, the professional costing organisations in the Ministry of Defence have a great deal to answer for here in simply not resolutely standing their ground in the face of the pressure which they came under. Um, and the one honourable exception that I would make to that is Selig Finclair, who very early on emphasised the distinction between what projects should cost and what they could cost. And of course, within the Ministry, it was what they could cost which um, uh, governed everybody's, everybody's thinking. Peter, it was a most important paper. Frank, I think you should insist that it is printed in full in the Society's journal and brought to the notice of the Council. And whilst bringing, them to the notice, uh, to bringing it to the notice of the Council, I think that you should ask, refer them also to the Colin Green Whittle lecture of five years ago and ask them if they're interested. And did they even notice? And don't you think, don't they think, the council, that it is in fact something that demands their most close attention? They produce position papers on this, that and the other, all of which tend to be of rather academic interest. Here is something which, as Peter has rightly said, is threatening the progressive death of this wonderful industry that we inherited. I hope you will take these steps and bring it all to the Council's notice. Thank you, Peter, for an absolutely super talk.
I wanted to stand up and cheer at regular intervals. Thank you. I don't think I deserve those plaudits, but just one thing I just could add to your comment about preparing for a a major project. Uh, On the thing called the Nimrod AEW, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, we had a demonstrator program contract award from RSRE to build a rather advanced AEW radar, which was cancelled, I seem to remember, in the early 1970s when most of the hardware had been produced and an air test aircraft been allocated to it, and it was cancelled for reasons I don't quite know, but they seemed spurious at the time, because always I think the fact that the RAF would never require an early warning aircraft. And four or five years later, they did require an early warning aircraft, and they wanted a Boeing, and uh, at that time we had a very well-intentioned minister, Mr. James Wellbeloved, who said, you'll have a bloody, my wife doesn't mind the language, you'll have a bloody British one or not. And we then had to start from scratch. So instead of having what would have been a very well-funded demonstrator program, which would have got over all the problems, which we then immediately ran into on the, uh, the new one, which is a lesser, not such a good radar has happened, we had to start from scratch. And we were gradually solving them, and something I haven't actually put in this thing. But um, if I have two or three minutes? Sure, yes. yes. Um, it might be interesting for the audience to know how the assessment of the AEW thing was done. The Nimrod had a, was asked to detect aircraft out to 200 miles range. And the, on the final test, it was flown around over Scotland for a number of days. And we detect, and we had the number, we recorded the number of aircraft we detected from the Nimrod flying around and compared that the number of uh, aircraft recorded from ground radars. Cost a hell of a lot of money. We had about 100 different targets in the air. And the Nimrod was meant to achieve, I think, was a 65% detection rate. We actually achieved 80%. And uh, it, was, it worked pretty well. And the RAF then said, ah, but if we'd had the, uh, the, the Sentry or the, the E2C or the E3, we would have detected targets out to 240 miles radius. And there were many, many more targets out of that radius which the Nimrod wouldn't have detected. Therefore, the Nimrod's detection rate was really only sort of 54%. Therefore, they failed. It's the most spurious scientific argument I've ever seen. And unfortunately, and even, and I'll tell you his name, he's, well, I won't know, he's the treasurer of the Royal Institute of Navigation. Uh, and every time I'm interested in doing he said, well, uh, we wanted to achieve our ends. So it just shows you what happens when you've got this lack of trust between the two sides. Indeed. Yes, thank you, Peter. Uh, another, yes, gentleman here in the middle. Could you wait for the microphone and, and say your name and affiliation, if any? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Robert Lightfoot, um, ex-Royal Air Force. You said very clearly that the collaborative programmes uh, hold all sorts of uh, portents of doom and failure, uh, particularly if they have dispersed geographic production uh, plans. Nevertheless, Airbus with their 380 appear to be going down all those sort of routes that you suggested are full of hazard, and there's a civil program where the economics are paramount. Comment, please. Well, I think uh, I didn't quite say that. What, what I said was if you have four separate production lines, there's one Airbus production line, two if you count, I think it's the 321, which is made up at Hamburg. Uh, what Airbus are doing are exactly, have got all of the elements, plus one additional, uh, better one, which we had on the uh, Jaguar. Uh, in other words, that the, it's a partnership of equals, 
among uh, BAE and uh, EADS, uh, that the work packages are in well-defined uh, separate packages. Uh, there's no duplication of design and, and development effort. There is, in fact, one production line. Uh, you're not uh, putting wings on or tails on or everything in four or five different locations. And most importantly, it's the contractual arrangements between the partners, or what you might call risk-bearing subcontracts, whereas British Aerospace has got a contract to build the wings at a certain price, and if they get that wrong, then they lose money. Whereas in the Tornado program, uh, if the German, if MBB were losing money, they used to go along to the German MOD and milk some more money out of them, and I'm quite certain British Aerospace did the same, and I know that the Italians did. So it's uh, in, in Airbus, there are it's very much as... Uh, uh, Mike Neil mentioned about the Rolls-Royce engines. It's been is being done on a commercial basis, with a single production line and separate sub uh, separate subcontracts in different locations for major components. Which incidentally is exactly the, the way the Boeing 747 was built. It's a matter of interest. I don't know if you know this, but Northrop uh, in Hawthorne, California, made the greatest amount of 747 structure by weight. Uh, in fact, more than Boeing. And used to ship it up to Seattle to be put together there. That's right, isn't it, Brian? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank, Thank you very much. That's a, there's a, there's a good point there, Peter. You referred in your lecture very appropriately to the, the question of the, the scale of the landmass involved. I think here in Europe, we, we, it's a natural tendency to think here we are building these, these Airbus aircraft all over the place around Europe. But the distances between the centers of production of these important parts, in most cases, I guess, are actually shorter than the distances between the centers of production of the major American airplanes. That would be so, probably, wouldn't it? Uh, there was another question. Over at the back, thank you. Alistair Christie, founder of branch of the society. Um, Thank you for a first-class and excellent lecture. You mentioned two or three times trust, trust between the various components of uh, a program. Uh, I see that as uh, trust between the Ministry of Defence, the manufacturer, and the civil service. But there is one factor which nobody trusts, not very much, and that is the politician. We'd like to comment on how politicians can really screw up your programs. <laughs> well, um, as a rail of honor, of course, as Duncan Sands would probably head it up. Um, I, um, it, I think it comes back to what, what I, I said at the, at the end of the lecture, that the, there is a total lack of understanding in the political class about the whole process of research, development, time scale, evolutionary manufacturer prototypes and, and issues. Many of them, I sure still think you can stop the program today and start another one in two years' time, possibly start, off, start where you left off. Uh, we have got a governing class. In the same way in the Middle Ages, we had a governing class which was enmeshed in church rituals and monasteries and things like this until they got cleared out. Uh, we've got a governing class that's uh, keen on uh, law, a lot of lawyers, as you well know, uh, uh, media studies, I've mentioned. 
uh, sort of social sciences, very important in many instances. But uh, I think I'm right in saying we have sitting amongst us tonight, Sir Kenneth Warren, Dr. Kenneth Warren there. Stand up, Ken, take a bow. Who is, I think is one of the four or five aircraft engineers who ever sat in the House of Commons and sat with distinction for many years and ultimately became chairman of the Committee on Trade and Industry where he didn't always get very many points from his own party because he often sort of told the un uh, unhelpful truth about uh, the way industrial policy ought to be con considered. We have got to have a really major sea change at the, the, at the level of people in the polit political classes and how you achieve that and get the scientists and, other, uh, and engineers and people of the same rational thought, ilk of rational thought, I don't know. It's interesting that we've had at least one astronaut stand to be president of the United States, and we've got at least one in the in, in Senate, I think maybe two in the Senate at the present time, pre, uh, in, in Senate at the present time, that that class of person in the United States has got access through the political hierarchy. In the United Kingdom, uh, I don't imagine that... Um, Mr. Blair really has very much idea of what aviation is about at all. Thank you. Um, Alistair Alcock, sorry, we'll come round to you. Alistair Alcock, you are waiting. Thank you very much. Uh, Alistair Alcock, I am retired now. I spent uh, quite a number of years in uh, aircraft uh, division in DTI and did two tours in Washington. And at the risk of sounding obsequious, I can only say that uh, I agree with virtually everything that we've heard tonight, and it was often very sad to observe this from inside the civil service. However, the one point I think I would challenge is the Vickers 1000, because to my mind, it was hopelessly handicapped by buried engines and undercarriages in the wing. Had it been built, the fact that the Conway had entirely the wrong bypass ratio would have been obvious within a few months, and it would then have meant tearing the airplane to pieces to put that right. It's notable that in the diagram you showed us, it had pinion tanks like the Comet 4, largely because of the lack of fuel capacity within a wing which was full of engines and wheels. And I think that was such a serious error that it wouldn't have had very much of a future. Well, I think that, I think that there's, a, there's, a lot, there's, there's quite a lot of truth in that comment, but bear, bear in mind the Conway did uh, Surface in both the um, uh, Boeing 707 and the DC-8, and uh, later in the in the B, in the VC-10. And the uh, I think you're absolutely right. The Vickers 1000 was not the right configuration, and it would not have gone on to the same sort of evolutionary development that the 707 went on to. But it would have given us a place in the market, which uh, because TCA, as you know, were, uh, were interested in the aircraft. And we would have been able, I think, to sell quite a number of them and establish ourselves in the early big jet market from which we could have hopefully then developed later aircraft. But as I said, it, it wasn't perfect. It's, uh, and uh, the buried engine concept is something which uh, was a mistake in the UK part. It's quite interesting. At a meeting we had, um, Anglo-American meeting up in the, uh, in the Houston area, I think it was in 1952 or maybe 54, in which... Uh, there was a big debate about buried engines between the Americans who wanted pods and the UK wanted buried engines. And it was shattered by somebody from Convair who stood up and said, well, we're building a Mac II Delta airplane with podded engines. And everybody <laughs> sort of fell back in surprise. A, shouldn't have mentioned it from a security point of view, but uh, everybody sort of fell back with surprise that uh, 
you could even consider a polydention in Mark II. And I think that was, that was one of the re, one of the areas where I think we suddenly realised we got it wrong. But I agree with you; it, it wasn't a perfect aeroplane. But I think it would have given us a uh, at least some sort of place in a small place in the early long-range jet development, which would enable the industry to have gone on. Yes, I think uh, that. Um, uh, it, I think there's an interesting point there about the way in which the British industry seemed to set its face against the, uh, the, um, the highly swept thin-wing, um, uh, high-aspect ratio wing with podded engines. There seemed to be a, a consensus, if I can call it that, among those who were concerned with big jet aircraft against it. And uh, I'd love to understand that more fully, actually, sometime. But Sir Kenneth, I think you wanted to talk. Captain on the back one, uh, thank you, sir. Uh, Kenneth Warren Fellow. Um, I'm bound to say it's an excellent lecture, whatever my feelings may truly be, because Peter was my boss twice at BIC and Elliott Automation, <laughs> and he did offer to trade my then girlfriend against his current wife before they were married, I assure you. <laughs> but um, I, I also, as, as a trainee in BIC, can endorse what Peter said. He remember Mr. Scott who when I was a trainee, he was the chief economics officer, and I thought he was joking when I was attached to his department, and he said, from a site 10 miles away from Heathrow, if it wasn't for those bloody aircraft down at the airport, we could really get down to the paperwork. <laughs> and he meant it. But may I uh, begin to apportion blame, uh, because an ex-politician has that right. Uh, first of all, uh, don't forget, Peter, I heard your lecture 30 years ago. It was made by Sir George Edwards. He said the Jaguar cost 30% more than it need if he'd only had the right to build it himself. In those 30 years, um, in my time in politics, we had uh, a chemical engineer as a prime minister. We had a, an excellent British Airways pilot, a secretary of state for trade and industry. There haven't been equivalent posts in the United States government. The problem, I think, if I may lay some blame somewhere, and it's very difficult to do this, is in the Royal Aeronautical Society. The first speaker told us everything that needed to be said, but it won't be heard. And I think this is the problem. You're competing, as I compete as a fellow, against politicians who are more interested in health, education, and welfare, as opposed to the aircraft industry. This is a very vulnerable industry. It's the only one I know which, in fact, is run by government for political purposes. The government over the last 40, to 50 years, it'd been more interested in what it can do with Europe than what it can do for this particular industry. And I would plead with you to take it beyond your council and try and be heard, not just in Whitehall, but in fact in Westminster. Thank you. Um, Harold Kaplan. Uh, Chairman, I'd like to do a little more than just add to the peons of praise to be heaped upon your committee and on Peter Hearn. As to my affiliation, I think I need say no more than I'm a friend of Peter Hearn. We first met at Cranfield in 1947. And I do believe with Ken Warren that all the essential messages were given by the first speaker in this discussion. But there's a very gloomy prognosis. An 18th century German philosopher, Hegel, said, history shows us that governments and statesmen learn nothing from history or act upon principles deduced from it. 
We had exactly the same thoughts when Peter was there inspiring us in the early 60s in the Cranfield Society. I've heard him speak to similar effect in the Royal Aeronautical Society. We do have to find some means of carrying the message to the country at large, if at all. It probably will be impossible, but more members of the society need to be aware of the broader audience in which their careers develop, in which the whole industry takes place. So I have absolutely no hope for the future whatsoever, but I back all the suggestions that have been made in the hope that something will trickle down through the political and civil service process. So can I conclude just by not only congratulating Peter, uh, because the unique feature of his historical talk was based all on personal experiences, first-hand experiences. We've had more than a historical talk. We've had an ap apocalyptic vision for the whole of the aviation industry. And although he has exercised it personal foresight as well as high hindsight could I ask him one almost trivial question in connection with the theme of his talk would he like to hazard a guess as to which is the correct size the 7E7 or the A380 <laughs> <laughs> the A380 well I, th I think if I, if I was putting my own money into the project I'd put it into 77. And uh, various reasons to say, because I, I think that the, the city pair concept is one which will uh, att attract or dedicated aircraft on, on the development of quite a lot of new city pairs is, is the way I think aviation will go. Like I said, I just go back to Mr. Alcock's previous comment, the biggest 1,000. I agree that it wasn't perfect, but it was sure was better than the Britannia. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, next, next uh, contributor. Marconi. Um, one of the, I mean, I think one of the real problems with uh, the political MOD enthusiasm for collaborative programs is the embedded mantra that uh, gets repeated time after time, year after year, that the cost of collaborative programs rises as the square root of the number of collaborators. You know, I believe all the experience from, from Tenedo and certainly all the experience from Eurofighter shows that's far from true. And indeed, the real cynic might believe the, 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 the true cost was more like the square of the, the number of collaborators, but it's sure as hell not the square root. And I actually do believe that uh, one of the things the society could actually help with on this is establishing some real figures as to, to what these programs have cost relative to what they might have cost on a, on a sole nation program and, and, and get rid of some of these myths that actually perpetrate through the uh, MOD and, and the politicians in supporting the collaborative programs. And another detail factor which, uh, which Peter didn't actually touch on is that again, once you do get collaborative programs, the, the cost then becomes artificially driven by the just retour principle which is actually applied to them, which uh, forces many programs and many contracts being, being awarded to, to countries and con companies grossly incapable of doing them, which uh, and inevitably the whole thing marches at the pace of the slowest uh, 
the slowest soldier in this whole whole battle. Well, I think the Eurofighter, of course, is a prime example. I mean, the, the, um, you can guess uh, who the slowest soldiers are in the Eurofighter, in the, in, the, in the four nations involved in Eurofighter. And, of course, when the, everything does slow up, um, if you've got four design teams in the activity and one of them falls behind in its responsibilities, the other three have still got to, have got to be fed. And that's one of the reasons why the cost of the Eurofighter has gone out of sight. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, and I think everybody else, going back to the, uh, the comment John Harrison made right at the beginning, that uh, had we built a Eurofighter based on the EAP, uh, we would have been, the thing would have been in service, and it would have been probably one if not a tenth of the cost, around about a quarter of the cost of what's happening at the moment. Peter Davison, lastly, of the, the Science Museum. Um, for fear of casting a stone into your turbulent ripples, um, the nationalistic attitude that we should go alone is, is all very well, and you've painted very gloomy pictures about collaboration. At the end of the day, if there are people sitting saying this in Germany or people sitting saying this in Korea or wherever, where they all might feel that collaboration is dead, we must go it alone, at the end of the day, how many are you going to sell if every nation proceeded along that path? You've painted a very justifiable and, and encouraging uh, picture of the way Airbus is progressing with the A380. Um, would it not be better to say that we need to change the way in which we collaborate more to that ilk, such that perhaps with the uh, A400, um, a number of people participate, add expertise, and buy and operate, um, and we have a single production line. So surely their collaboration is not what we should be killing, it's the way in which uh, collaborative projects are set up and run. And I apologise if that's what you're getting at anyway. I, I don't disagree with that. And I think, uh, as I pointed out on Jagger and Concord, which is a little more difficult to argue about, but, uh, but certainly on Jagger, you had Breguet and uh, Wharton, uh, and you had, uh, they were both equally competent. You had large chunks uh, allocated to each, and they shipped them around and put them together, and they, they worked very well. And uh, the, there's, uh, when you also introduce into that a sort of a risk-bearing subcontractor type thing where each partner's responsible for his own costs and has to control them against the thing, I, d I don't disagree that that, that is, that that is uh, about, is, uh, an adequate way to go. Uh, what I object to, and what has caused all the problems, is what you're seeing on Eurofighter, where everybody wants to get in and meddle with the design, where there's no clear single prime contractor other than there's some uh, an an anonymous, comp uh, anonymous sort of multi-headed uh, hydro company, and where the decision-making is is made uh, where, if you like, the Italian member on, what I don't know, is it NEFTA? I don't know what they call the, uh, the organization these days. The Italian Air Force uh, member there decides, okay, he wants a particular shape or symbol on one of the head-down displays. And somebody in Rome says, oh, no, 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 we want it in Greek or Latin or something like that. And I can assure you that on the, on the tornado, just to give you an example of that, massive problems on the had done uh, the TV tab displays in the back cockpit because the Italians kept on changing their minds on the font, which they wanted on those things. And every time they changed their mind, it took about six or eight months to get up and down the line. And we were trying to design the wretched thing, and eventually we said, look, 
we're going to go ahead and do it, do it like this, whereupon the people saying, oh, we, we can't get what we want. You've got to get a proper system of control, so cut out the duplication of design development effort and uh, have sensible designed interfaces, and yes, that is, that is a way to go. But uh, if you're talking about independent contractors, I mean, if you can see, the Swedes did the Gripen on their own, that's not a bad aeroplane. Well, I think we're coming towards the conclusion. Perhaps I could just uh, invite you to comment a little more, Peter, on the role of the military customer in this. Um, I don't mean MOD, MOD procurement side, I mean the military customer, the RAF, the Navy, the Army, where appropriate. Um, we've heard We've heard you say strong things tonight about the, the way the requirements for the TSR2 was loaded up and loaded up. Um, in my own experience in the civil service establishments, I've felt often that uh, there was a, um, uh, not as high a degree of responsibility as one might, one might put it in regard to what was being asked for and also I felt that from time to time there was a tendency of our military people to really try to angle for a situation where they could get an American aeroplane you know there's a feeling that the American aeroplanes are more attractive more exciting somehow couldn't we have those um, and looked at from their point of view, if one was in that system, I can understand it to a degree. They would like to have the very best fighting machines, the very best, most advanced equipment and so forth, and couldn't we have one of these? And our job, and I've heard this many times, our job is not to sustain the the industry or the UK research establishments or whatever. Our job is to get the, the best piece of kit for the next round of uh, military um, activity. Um, we're not supposed to be obliged to do anything else. Our priority must be this. So that tends to help those who want to uh, uh, act in a way which is, shall we say, not wholly supportive of our own national efforts. <coughs> Would you like to comment any further along uh, on that sort of problem area? Or perhaps you don't see it as a problem area, but I suspect you do to some extent anyway. Well, yes, I, th I think it is a problem area. And I think one of the problem areas comes about because this type of procurement activity tends to be done on a serial basis. The RAF comes up with an operational requirement or an air staff requirement, which uh, ultimately gets fed down to the MOD, PE, and they argue amongst between the MOD and PE and the RAF. Then it finally falls down into industry. And we're all looking at the thing and taking it apart serially and putting it together serially. And the whole process takes a long time. And you don't necessarily get the type of technological trade-offs which you should get between industry and the RAF. Mm -hmm. Now, in the United States, it's quite interesting. 
they don't have nearly such a strong OR requirement, OR group. They have an OR group. Uh, surprisingly, I found it was slightly smaller than the UK one in one instance. But they do depend to a very large extent of having a lot of very competent, retired military Air Force officers in the aircraft industry. If you walk into General Dynamics or Northrop, you will find at least two or three ex-fighter squadron commanders sitting around the design office. You'll find aircraft, uh, uh, U.S. Air Force engineers, different parts of it. And so well, I think what you find that the U.S. Air Force tends to deal, it doesn't have a Mod PE, it has functions of the Mod PE, but it tends to deal directly with the aircraft companies. And the aircraft companies have a lot of Air Force, ex-Air Force people in them who react with and can operate trade-off type discussions at an early stage in the project with the Air Force. So they can say, look, we could, if you didn't ask for that, we can give you this, and vice versa. Whereas uh, in the UK, you tend to get a situation where eventually it comes down and says, well, this is the OR, and this is what we want to produce, now how much is going to be, and you then start arguing as to can you do this, can you do that, can you do the next thing, instead of starting off with the, the semi-agreed specification between the two sides. So I think to that extent, it's, it's, it's quite a bit different, and uh, the, the process is carried on, uh, I say, with... Out of three, I'm not knocking uh, MOD because you need to have intelligent people, the knowledgeable technical people in the act. But the process is carried out without too many organisations in the way, and that I think would be a great help. And I don't know whether Brian, do you want to comment on that, Brian? Yeah, I, I... Uh, Brian Tucker still working with BAE. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right, Peter, that uh, we have a disjointed uh, relationship between the industry and the people actually trying to make the decisions about what we might have. We don't also have a strong um, underpinning desire to, to limit change that occurs during the development of programs. And all of the examples you gave earlier uh, of successes, whether it be the F-16 or even the discussion on Airbus, or Boeing or many other projects that have occurred successfully around the world, and some here as well, have been when there's been an autocratic control of the design process and change. And that's one of the issues that we don't manage to succeed with in any collaborative program, where the, the, uh, the desire for modification and change becomes endemic throughout the program. And most successes occur when you, when you limit that very strongly. Uh, you do need that relationship, and I think we do not have it today. I, I speak sadly as uh, seeing, um, indeed, I've been at some meetings even today where uh, a lack of desire for understanding the underpinning technologies that should be retained within the UK will limit our future capability to participate not only in UK programs, but in American programs as well. And that's a really crucial issue, I think, for the industry today and for the government. Uh, that we understand how to be an intelligent customer. And I draw a slight um, uh, on, that, on the comment you made um, about the uh, uh, ability for the industry itself and for the government to actually be able to know what it wants to buy. If you don't have the understanding of the systems and technology in the country, you don't actually know what's the best anyway to buy from anybody else. Thank you. Thank you, by the way, Peter, for an excellent talk. I think you should go and give it straight to number 10. Anything further? I think we're drawing to a conclusion. 
So I think we will draw to a conclusion. Um, Peter, uh, many things have been said uh, around the room this evening um, uh, in support of your general arguments. Uh, I did wonder at one stage whether we were going to have a discussion at all um, because uh, there seemed to be so much that it was difficult to disagree with. And I thought, heavens, you know, uh, I, chair a, I chair an outfit which, uh, which thrives on, on debate and discussion and disagreement. Where are we going? But we have had a very constructive discussion. I think we've moved over a few things in the debate, clarified various things quite importantly. But certainly, um, I would line myself up, pity he's, he's gone now, but uh, I would line myself up very much with the strongly congratulatory remarks which Mike Neal made. And I do think that it's incumbent upon us to try to bring these messages home. Uh, they've been said before, and indeed some people have pointed out that Peter has said this sort of thing before. We've just got to keep pressing these things forward. Um, and certainly, uh, I have already said to Peter that I very much hope that a version of the lecture will be readily available for publication in the society's material as soon as possible. I think that's one step we can take, and I shall certainly take every opportunity to publicize the relevance of the messages as far as I can, and I would hope other people in the room will do so too. Um, it's been a splendid lecture, Peter. It's certainly um, shown the relevance of serious study of history in the aeronautical sphere, history as a way of learning and understanding about what has happened in the past, and from that, taking messages about what we should do and certainly what we shouldn't do in the future. That's one of the very important uh, tasks which I feel is upon us in the historical group of the society, and we shall use every endeavour to continue with that. So thank you very much indeed, Peter, for a most excellent lecture, and I call upon everybody, and I'm sure there'll be no slowness in this, to, with me, applaud you most strongly for a wonderful lecture. As regular attenders of these evenings will know, we do try to uh, give our lecturers a small memento of the occasion so that they can look back in, on this, uh, this evening, and it is now my pleasant duty to present that uh, on behalf of all of us to Peter. Thank you. It is a little clock, and I think the significance of that, perhaps, in the context of Peter's lecture, is that time is passing by, and we must 
we must attend to these messages and not, not just let everything uh, uh, dribble away, as, as he, he's pointed out the, the danger of that. Peter. Well, thank you very much, Frank. I just wanted to look over a little envoy, if I can, a personal one. I started my involvement in aviation in the Air Defence Cadet Corps, which later became the ATC in 1939, with some very primitive gliding in those days. And in 1940, I was pushing hurricanes like about in RAF aerodromes, and that led me to Loughborough to study aeronautical engineering. I little thought when I walked down the garden path of my digs in 1946, that I, when I left Loughborough, that I'd have such a widespread career involving jobs in design offices, research labs, manufacturing shops, flight sheds, and most gratifyingly, some 5,000 hours in the cockpits of some hundred different types of aircraft. I've squandered my life in aviation. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you.